Good morning. We're continuing in our study of First Peter. Let's turn there, please. Peter, in his, uh, his epistle, addresses, um, addresses it to pilgrims and wanderers and aliens in a, in a hostile world. It helps to have that, um, that mindset as we go through and, uh, and follow the instructions of, uh, of Peter as he's addressing the group. Last week... Noad took us through uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, and he gave us some practicalities for being a blessing to others. And uh, the last verse that he covered, 1 Peter 3, 12, reads, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter presents two people Two, or two classes of people in this verse. He, uh, he addresses the righteous. The Lord's eyes are on the righteous. And the, those who do evil, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is a good starting point for us this morning. We're going to look at these, uh, these people this morning as we go through uh, our lesson, and we'll, uh, we'll contrast these two as we go, the righteous and the wicked, those who do evil. But um, let's, let's read our passage, 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We'll look at, um, we'll look at this passage uh, in three sections. First is the... Um, the Lord's followers are protected from harm, but they are blessed in the pain of persecution. They're protected from harm, but they're blessed in the pain of persecution. How does that work? Sounds like a contradiction. Second, we'll look at um, several keys to prepare for persecution. And then um, we'll look at the, um, the need for discernment. The Lord's followers need discernment in approaching in facing persecution. First off, the Lord's followers are protected from harm and blessed in distress. Um, Peter asked the rhetorical question, uh, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of that which is good? The, um, the purpose of the Lord is, uh, for his believers is good works. We read in, um, uh, sorry, back up, generally we avoid ill treatment when we're busy doing good and not doing evil. 
And so uh, the Lord's purpose, God's purpose, is for, uh, for good works. We read in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared the way for his believers uh, to do good works. That's his plan. And then in Titus 2, 13 and 14, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. God has a life of good works mapped out for each of his believers. That's an interesting term in verse 13. We become, uh, if you become followers of what is good, we could translate that word as um, uh, in the New King, in the uh, NIV version, uh, it reads, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Okay, so a uh, uh, follower is one who's eager to do good. And in fact, uh, one um, Kenneth Wiest uh, made an expanded translation of the Bible, and he said, um, who is he who will do you evil if you become zealots of what is good? A zealot is a person who's um, single-minded. Uh, uh, his, his goal is to, is to, to do something uh, radical, and um, in this case, it's to, to do good become zealots of good. The, um, the and in verse 13 means it's a continuation from verse 12, and who is he who will harm you? And we look back at, um, uh, at the Lord's protection. His eyes are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. He, he protects his believers Lena Sandelberg wrote the hymn Day by Day and uh, expressed it this way, the protection of God's child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. God takes it as a personal responsibility for your safety, for your welfare. Um, your, your sister, Aida, reminded me after the meetings last Sunday that um, uh, a believer in the Lord's hands is totally safe, totally protected. So we read, uh, we hear the Lord Jesus uh, phrase it this way, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. No one's going to touch you in the Lord Jesus' hand, in his Father's hand. In his eagerness to attack Job, Satan complained to the Lord, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? Satan was, uh, he was wanting to attack 
uh, Job, and he, he, couldn't, he couldn't touch Job because there was this hedge that God had placed around him. And so um, Satan said, um, let me at him. He'll, uh, he'll curse you to your face. God protects his, his believers, his followers from harm. And yet, Peter instructs the, uh, the readers of his letter in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Peter indicates that um, the believer may, follow, may uh, experience suffering for following good. How does that work? Because God permits evil. He permits suffering in his followers' lives for a greater blessing than they would have otherwise. God permits that. He permitted it in Job's life. He allowed Satan to touch him to destroy all that Job had. But understand that uh, God blessed Job through it and that God was glorified through it. There was greater blessing through the, um, the suffering that Job endured. Well, Peter, uh, to help us understand better what's going on here, uh, Peter describes these two people, and we'd like to kind of characterize them, kind of uh, break them down in these verses to see exactly who they are. And let's start with the one who does evil. In verse 13, uh, how does Peter describe him? He's one who does harm. He's committed to destruction. He's, um, uh, he's malicious. He's bad. In verse 14, uh, he talks about their threats. Okay, so the, uh, the one who does evil is threatening. He's intimidating. He's frightening. In verse 16, He's uh, defaming, he's slanderous, he's malicious. And the word uh, revile means to insult or to be abusive. So that's, um, that's our evildoer. The, um, the righteous, by stark contrast in verse 13, is a follower of what is good. He's... Um, He's, he's committed to doing uh, what is good in the Lord's eyes. He's a sufferer, in fact, for righteousness' sake, and he's blessed in verse 14. The righteous may be subject to fear in uh, verse 15, but he has a hope within. He's meek and gentle, and what fear he has is a a respectfulness toward those, um, uh, those that he's going to give an answer to. And overall, he's got good conduct in verse 16. His, um, he conducts himself in obedience to Jesus. These, uh, his good conduct is in Christ, all right? So he's following the example of Jesus. He's obeying the commands, the desires of the Lord Jesus. Well, we have the evildoer and we have the righteous. What motivates the evildoer to do evil, to, um, 
to harm, to threaten, to defame, to abuse. We find a, a very interesting uh, answer to that in, um, um, in the example of Cain. For, uh, John tells us in 1 John 3, he says that uh, Cain was of the wicked one and, uh, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his, that is, Abel's works were evil and, I'm sorry, because Cain's works were evil and his brother Abel's were righteous. Okay? What motivated Cain to murder his brother? It was because Abel's works were righteous and Cain's were evil. We see in the righteousness of, of Christ, we see that in the believer as a, uh, a standard, as a straight edge, as a ruler, and we uh, we see it set down in the world, and then we bring a stick alongside. I should have brought a stick this morning. And we bring the stick over, and we see, wow, I didn't realize how, how crooked that stick was. I was going to use it for a, uh, for a stake in my garden, but uh, I see that the stick is really crooked. And that's what Cain realized was how crooked his life was. I can do away with the standard by killing my brother. And, uh, and so he did. And uh, John follows up by saying, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Cain killed his brother. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, he said, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. I've heard you uh, use the illustration, Howard, of um, uh, turning over that big rock in the garden. We, we flip it over and all the bugs scurry around uh, in the light because they don't like the light. They, they want darkness. And so the, the doers of evil, the wicked, uh, they don't want light. They don't want their deeds exposed. They prefer darkness. They prefer to do their deeds in secret. We should not wonder that there is persecution in the world, but that there's not more of it, that there's not more persecution. Um, there is in different cultures. Why not here in the United States? We should not think of suffering for Christ as something strange, but instead count it as a privilege. Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Suffering for righteousness, you are blessed. Where is the blessing in the pain of persecution? Well, Jesus tells us we are. In um, Matthew 5, he says, Blessed, that is, prosperous or happy, are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If the Lord Jesus tells us we're blessed, that's all we need to know. We can pack up our, uh, our notes and go home. You are blessed. 
because Jesus says we're blessed. But there are more. I provide a, a few more of the blessings of persecution, and you may know others. I'd be interested to hear what other uh, blessings that you realize in your study and in your experience. A second blessing is that the sufferer enters into a special communion with the Lord Jesus who suffered. Paul's aspiration in Philippians 3 was that I may know him, that is the Lord Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know this, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings being conformed to his death. There's a, um, there's a specialness, a uh, special bond uh, we realize uh, when we suffer for righteousness' sake that, uh, that we don't realize, we don't experience any other way. And the, the dear uh, believers in, in some of these oppressed uh, countries pray for persecution. Lord, bring persecution to the United States because um, uh, the believers there need that. They need that blessing. Okay, so there's Paul's aspiration. Paul's great aspiration was to, to know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of uh, suffering in Christ. A third blessing is um, the sufferer experiences a special enabling by the Lord Jesus to get through the suffering, to move through it, not to get away from it necessarily, but to endure it. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote, um, he said to me, um, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. Something that we would not experience if not for persecution is that enabling, that strength, the power, the endurance that the Lord gives to, to press on, to move through that, um, that, that pain. And then there's the prospect of future reward. Um, fifth, let's see, I'm sorry, a fourth blessing. In Mark 10, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus says... Um, there's that future reward. There's a present reward. There's a current reward. I experience uh, what the Lord Jesus has experienced, get to know him in a more intimate, more personal way. But then there's that, that future reward as well that, uh, that he has promised. And then uh, there's a fifth blessing that um, there are special opportunities to speak to people in persecution that I would never have otherwise. Um, the persecutors, the oppressors, the violent evildoers have the, their victim in hand, incarcerated, 
under their control, and they're going to listen to what that captive says in a special way that he would not have otherwise. Okay? So another blessing of persecution is that we earn a special hearing among our captors. Well, we are protected from harm and blessed in distress. What are some keys to preparedness for persecution? Because um, persecution may come, persecution will come. Let's be prepared. It's not the kind of thing that we can just uh, um, pull out our, our, um, our iPhone and say, you know, what, what should I be doing in this, in this situation? We need to be prepared beforehand. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter says in, um, in verse 14, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So uh, first key to preparation is to um, not fear the antagonist. Don't fear the persecutor. Peter is quoting from Isaiah 8. And he, uh, Isaiah was comforting King Ahaz as um, the Assyrians were marshalling for an invasion of, uh, of Judah. And um, Isaiah told him, don't fear. Don't fear. Um, Don't fear the Assyrians, because the Lord is doing his work. The Lord will be here. He'll be with you. He'll be with the nation of Judah. Similarly, the Lord tells his believers not to be shaken by intimidation. Don't fear the oppressor. I have to offer uh, kind of a just a degree of, of uh, hostility um, when we drive the speed limit, when we stop at stop signs, we aggravate the evildoer. The speed limit is legal. I mean, that's, that's the law. And the stop sign, uh, I think you're supposed to stop. It still says stop. But uh, when we stop, We have those people behind us occasionally who uh, are uh, irritated, and they'll show hostility to us. The enemy threatens uh, the the believer and attempts to weaken his resolve by intimidating him. Think um, Think of Goliath before the armies of Israel. Day by day, he was out there railing on Israel. You guys are cowards. You're weak. You're you're nothing. You're dogs. And the nation of Israel took it. They were, oh, they were getting beat up by this one giant. Um, maybe the goal was that uh, Israel would disperse. Maybe during these days of intimidation, there were, uh, there were deserters. People were leaving the armies of Israel because this, this Goliath was, um, uh, how tall was he? He was, uh, what, eight or nine feet tall and, and uh, had a... a Spear like a weaver's beam, a weaver's beam, and um, we don't fear him. We don't fear Goliath. We fear the Lord, and that's what motivated David. We need to be fearless like David in the face of uh, of our persecutors. 
I don't know what that face is. I don't know what the future holds, but uh, you and I may be face-to-face uh, -face with, um, um, with a persecutor who, who is intent on doing us harm. Don't fear him or her. Be fearless like David. Second key is um, to sanctify the Lord in your heart. What does that mean? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. To sanctify is to set apart. It's, um, it's a simple word. You, you set apart something. You, you make that holy. You, you bring it out from among the common things. And so um, Isaiah 8, following the, um, the comfort that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz, was um, this verse, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. That was David's fear. David feared the Lord. He feared his, um, uh, his dishonor. And David was jealous for the Lord's honor. So his focus was on, on the Lord and not on fear. And we likewise need to sanctify the Lord. Set him apart from all the trash and the, and the, um, the noise of the world and recognize his majesty, his, uh, his honor, his splendor. He is the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What does that mean in your Bible? That's a translation of Jehovah. The Jehovah, Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. To hallow is, a, is an old-fashioned word, means to reverence. We hallow the Lord when we reverence him, we sanctify him, we set him apart from the mundane, from the common. The Lord sent fire that um, devoured Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They were priests, and they'd offered uh, profane fire to the Lord, and the Lord uh, uh, killed them for their, uh, their blasphemy. And after... After this fire um, struck Nadab and Abihu, Moses turned to his brother Aaron and he said, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. The Lord says, By those who come near me I must be regarded as holy. And so the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, be your name, sanctified be your name, set apart, holy, different from those around us. And uh, in fact, this, uh, this verse, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, is a testimony to the deity of Christ. The um, NIV and the NASB translate this verse from a slightly different text. And the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, reads, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord from your hearts. That's New Testament. The Old Testament was, uh, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Okay? The Old Testament is Jehovah. The New Testament is Jesus. It shows uh, yet another evidence that the Jehovah of old is the Jesus 
in the New Testament. To sanctify the Lord Jesus is to reverence him, to acknowledge him as being in control of our lives and circumstances. When we set him apart as a sovereign, as the Almighty, in our hearts, we necessarily exclude any other lords, any would-be masters in our life. We, um, we cling to him and to him only. I take him alone as my Savior and Lord. We began our meeting this morning by uh, singing the, ha- the, the hymn in part, Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. May we crown him Lord of our all. Needless to say, to enthrone Jesus Christ in our hearts is to uh, depart the throne ourselves. There's no room for self where Jesus is on the throne. The third key Peter offers is um, in verse uh, 15, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. When Christ rules our lives, the world notices. And because the world hates the Lord Jesus, it hates his followers too. Jesus warned us of that. He said in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We, as Jesus' followers, must be ready to stand and defend and give a rational account of the hope that we have in us because uh, we will be challenged. We will be confronted by those who, who persecute. Well, what is our hope? What is the hope that is in us? Hope in the New Testament is a favorable expectation. We use it um, in uh, normal speech uh, conversation as a wish. You know, I really, really hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. But the, uh, the hope in the New Testament is a confidence. It's a, an expectation that, uh, that will happen. And uh, this hope is based on the Word of God. There's no more sure uh, foundation than God's word. Paul began his letter to Titus, he said, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So uh, Paul is reaching, to, reaching out to Titus, and he's, um, he's telling Titus, I have this hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time again. It's a confidence, it's not a, uh, a wish. 
This hope, this confidence, this assurance belongs to the one who recognizes that from birth, by heritage, um, by nature, he is an enemy of God. We, um, we worship the Lord this morning um, for uh, realizing that we were like the, um, in the days of Noah, we were, uh, we were wicked and um, ill-deserving. This hope belongs to one who recognizes his enmity before God and then uh, realizes that though he is an enemy, yet God offers reconciliation. He offers peace. He extends the, uh, the branch of peace through his son, through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans uh, 5.10 reads, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God uh, God offers the reconciliation. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and it's, uh, it's God initiating, God, uh, God saying, I will receive you to myself if you will believe in, the, in my son whom I gave for you. There's reconciliation for the enemy. And the, um, the enemy surrenders unconditionally to the Lord, crying out to him for mercy. And then... He rests, in the, he rests his welfare, his eternal welfare, on the promise of God that the Father delivers us from the power of darkness and conveys us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Do you have this hope? Do you have this confidence? Do you have the assurance that... Um, as a former enemy of God, you've been reconciled through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you do. The, um, the ministry of the Apostle Paul gives us some illustrations of, of um, this key. We're, we're talking about the, um, the key being to have a ready response for the hope that is within us. And um, I wish um, our time was longer because there are actually three um, great illustrations that Paul's life gives for giving a, a response uh, for this hope that was within him. One is um, before the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Uh, he was beaten and uh, left in jail, uh, oppressed. And um, when he had opportunity, um, the, the jailer asked him, what must I do to be saved? Well, uh, Paul was right there, um, giving, a, giving a reason for the hope that was within him. Um, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the man was saved. There was a second. Um, the, uh, the Jews in uh, Acts 21, they thought that Paul had gone into the temple with, um, uh, with Timothy or, or, or a Gentile, and so they, uh, they were going to pull him apart and uh, uh, have P over here and A and U and L uh, around the yard. But um, uh, he, was, he was rescued from, his, uh, from that danger, and um, 
I mean, these oppressors were, were intent on killing him. They were going to be satisfied with nothing less. But uh, Paul mounted the steps, and with the protection of the Roman centurion there, he proceeded to give testimony to, uh, to these uh, riotous Jews of the hope that was within him. Um, a third instance was um, Paul before Agrippa. Paul was um, um, brought out of prison and put before the king, and um, yeah, he was oppressed, he was imprisoned, um, but he had an opportunity to testify of God's grace before the king, and he took it. He used that, that opportunity. And so we should be ready to give a reason, a rational explanation for the hope that is within us. In, um, in each of these cases um, of Paul's life, his persecution gave him a special opportunity to speak to someone that he would not have met, would not have uh, had that opportunity except for his persecution. In suffering persecution, there are things that I can do, there are people I can reach that I could not do or could not reach otherwise. Um, a note of caution here, um, giving this defense of the hope that is within us is not about protecting our personal integrity. Is there ever an occasion for defending my reputation? No, not really. Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord's in charge of my reputation. He's the one who defends uh, what, uh, what reputation I, I have. We must um, deliver our defense with meekness and fear. The end of verse 15. Bill MacDonald writes in his commentary, there should be no trace of harshness, bitterness, or flippancy when we speak of our Savior and Lord, but um, should be done with uh, gentleness and respect. A fourth key um, is to keep a clear conscience in um, in verse 16, have a good conscience. Good meaning unimpaired, a clear conscience. The world, in its corrupt logic, its twisted thinking, seeks to paint the followers of the Lord as evildoers. We're, we're followers of good, we're, we want to do what's right, and yet the world paints us as, um, as evildoers. And we, need, we need to make sure that we are not suffering just for being plain obnoxious. Paul, uh, Peter says, keep a clear conscience. And um, to do that, I, I need to make sure that I'm not being a, a pest to, um, to my coworkers, my family, my unsaved neighbors. I, uh, there are things that I do that irritate people. I need to make sure that I'm not suffering for my wrongs, my faults, okay, um, to keep a clear conscience. Because um, there may be a measure of truth to their malicious speaking. These, uh, these evildoers are saying bad things about me. Well, how much of it is true? 
I need to, uh, need to walk uh, blamelessly, I need to maintain good conduct. But also I need to um, make sure that it's not God's chastening. Is there something that I've done wrong? Is there a way that I'm not following the Lord and he's chastening me for, for that? Um, Paul, uh, Peter says you need to have a clear conscience. You need to confess the things you've done wrong and confess them early, confess them thoroughly um, to clear the, um, my fellowship with the Lord. Peter wrote, uh, what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Well, okay, you're, you're being patient with your punishment, but it was something that you deserved. Um, persecution, on the other hand, is uh, um, pain that we don't deserve because we're, we're exercising good conduct. And that's the, um, that's the fifth key here is to exhibit good conduct in verse 16. Uh, when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good, your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So this good conduct is in obedience to Christ. There are things that I may imagine, things that I may develop in my own thinking that, uh, that are good, and yet they're not things that the Lord Jesus wants. So the, the exhortation here is... Um, to have good conduct in Christ, obeying him, following his example, um, reading and uh, saturating ourselves with his word so that we know what he wants. Exhibiting good conduct. Um, results in those being ashamed who would revile that conduct, uh, perhaps here on earth, in a moment of reflection, in a moment of repentance, the evildoer thinks, you know, I, I beat up that guy um, for doing what was good. Uh, I shouldn't have done that. And, um, um, and so he was ashamed in this lifetime of having uh, run him off the road or beaten him up or denied him a job or excluded him from the student body council, you know, whatever, whatever I did, I, I was wrong as an evildoer, and um, I, I realize I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed by my actions. That's the evildoer. Certainly, if not here on earth, that evildoer will, will realize shame when he comes before the Lord Jesus who, who set those works out. He, he, he gave... Uh, a life of good works to his follower, and the evildoer realizes, hey, it was the Lord Jesus who, who prescribed those works. He was the one who, uh, who assigned those, and uh, he will experience shame then, as Peter points out. Well, our last point this morning is um, uh, verse 17. It's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is commendable to God. This is uh, approved um, that we suffer for doing good. We understand this, that suffering for good is uh, more advantageous. It's more, uh, more uh, acceptable than suffering for our foolishness. Are there times 
when the Lord Jesus wants us to avoid persecution. It's an interesting qualification that Peter offers in verse 17. He says, if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good. There may be times when suffering for righteousness is not the will of God. Proverbs 22.3 reads, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The Lord Jesus instructed his 12 disciples when sending them to the surrounding towns and villages. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There were instances in the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry when he avoided persecution. He escaped stoning in um, John 10. He avoided arrest in the temple in John 7 and John 8. He avoided being cast off the edge of a cliff by his oppressors in uh, Luke 4 because his hour had not yet come. When his, um, when his hour did come, the Lord Jesus did not resist arrest and suffering for righteousness' sake. The Lord Jesus expects us to exercise judgment, not to expose ourselves needlessly to danger. We tempt the Holy Spirit when we walk into situations that we know are unnecessarily um, uh, brutal. Um, and uh, the Lord expects us not to be tricked into compromising situations, but to be cautious, to be wise, be discerning, be prudent. So the Lord has, uh, has his will, and it includes persecution and includes uh, us being prudent in avoiding persecution. Next week, in the will of the Lord, we'll read of our Lord Jesus as the supreme example of one who suffered for righteousness' sake, reminding us that for him, suffering was the pathway to glory. We need to prepare for persecution. We live in remarkable peace in this country, and we've done so for generations, but the winds of change are blowing and they're not blowing for good. By review, be fearless of your antagonists. Sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. Be always ready to give answer to those who ask you for the hope that was, is in you. Keep a clear conscience. Maintain good conduct in Christ, and exercise discernment in questionable circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts go out to our brothers and sisters who are oppressed this hour and enduring persecution. We pray that they might uh, enjoy the, um, these keys to persecution that we've reviewed this morning and um, uh, prepare us Lord, uh, equip us to endure persecution as, um, 
as we ch see changes in our government, in our society, in uh, people's expectations, we, we want to be ready. Uh, we want to glorify you. We want to uh, be approved in your sight as your disciples. So we, um, we thank you in your name. Amen.